The Jodcast, coming soon to an asteroid near you, with Liz Guzman, Philippa Hartley, India Leclerc, Tim O'Brien, and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, April 2013, Extra Edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Indy Leclerc, and joining me today are Christina Smith and Philippa Hartley. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, we talk to Professor Paola Caselli about emission from star-forming regions, and Dr. Tim O'Brien answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, this month's Jodbite. Liz Guzman interviews Professor Shude Mao about detecting exoplanets using gravitational microlensing. For this month's Jodbite, Professor Shude Mao talks to us about finding exoplanets using microlensing. Hi, Professor. Thank you for being with us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about um, finding exoplanets using microlensing. Okay, may- maybe I should start uh, with uh, what is uh, microlensing. Yeah. Right? So uh, microlensing basically refers to um, the fact that uh, a background source mm-hmm. can be gravitationally magnified by an intervening object between you and the source. Okay, of course, uh, this sort of uh, microlensing uh, effect does not happen every day. In fact, it's very, very rare. It only happens uh, once for one million stars. Okay. So in the past, it's very difficult to observe this phenomenon. But uh, with modern computers and CD technology in astronomy, uh, it becomes now routinely possible to uh, find microlensing events uh, from a haystack, let's say, to find a needle in the haystack, okay? So, uh, if you monitor hundreds of millions of stars, you will see uh, many gravitational microlensing events. It turns out, for a few percent of these events, uh, you also have signatures uh, for uh, extrasolar planets. So, for normal microlensing events, uh, you see a bell-shaped light curve. Mm-hmm. Okay, causing a uh, shaped light curve. And uh, when the uh, when an extrasolar panel is present, uh, you ha- see an extra bump or dip in the light curve. And this is the sort of feature we uh, try to observe uh, in order to infer the presence of, of extrasolar planets. Okay. Um, so... To go about a little bit of history, I know that you predicted some numbers back in the 90s. Right, that was actually my first published paper. Okay. Um, so at that time, in 1991, uh, no microlensing events have been observed. Yeah. Uh, these days, uh, about 10,000, more than 10,000 microlensing events have been observed. Yeah. But at that time, no event was uh, seen, but... Um, I was uh, a starting PhD student working with uh, Professor Bodan Pachinski at Princeton. So one day we were sitting in his office uh, chatting about uh, microlensing possibilities, and he said to me, you know, uh, who knows, it may even be possible to to see uh, extrasolar planet signatures in microlensing events. Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard his comments and I just went away and did some calculations because he didn't suggest this as a thesis topic to me. Yeah. Uh, I was working uh, on something else. 
But、uh, it turns out it's very easy to work it out, and、uh, I did it in a few days,、mm-hmm. and、um, we made the prediction that、uh, the extra solar panels should be present、uh, in about a few percent of、uh, all the microlensing events、uh, you see, and this prediction、uh, turns out to be almost exactly what we see、oh. uh, today, and it's very rewarding to. <laughs> to see that something you predict、uh, on a piece of paper、uh, actually turns out to be true in nature, I think this is one of the most exciting episodes in my life. <laughs> of course. Okay. Um. So about these microlensing events. So you, what about if you have a binary system? Do you also see that the other star if it's eclipsing, right? Or how do you know if it's an exoplanet or an, another star? Right. Actually, in the same paper, we made the prediction for binary、okay. uh, microlens events as well. So this is、uh, one star orbiting another star. Yeah.、Um, and it turns out the、uh, event rate for this sort of binary microlens events is also similar to that of、uh, for extrasolar planets. Planets. Now you s- can tell whether it's a binary star or planet because the perturbation provided by the planet is much shorter. Yeah. Than a typical、uh, binary star, so for a Jupiter-sized planet, the perturbation is of the order of one day, and、okay. for an Earth-sized pl-、uh, planet, it's of the order of few hours. But for a normal star, the、uh, perturbation is much, much longer and potentially much stronger. Okay, and can you get any,、um, I don't know, any parameters from the planet from the signal? Apart from from the periodicity, I guess. Right. So for binary stars, the light curves can be very very diverse.、Okay. Can be of、uh, many many different shapes. For extrasolar planets,、uh, the light curves can also be complicated, but、mm-hmm. uh, can be somewhat simpler to model. So from modeling of these light curves, what you get、uh, is normally the mass ratio between the、uh, Two lenses. So in this case, we have、uh, the primary primary star and the planet. So we can get the mass ratio between the planet and the primary star,、okay. and we can also get the separation in units of、uh, typical、uh, length in、uh, gravitational microlens, so-called Einstein radius,、okay. because Einstein, f- well, first correctly worked it out in 1936. So it's called Einstein ring. So these are the two parameters we get. Mass ratio and the separation. Okay, very good. So you predicted all these numbers, and then what telescopes are they used to observe these microlensing events?、Uh, that's a very interesting、uh, question. In fact, the telescope used are not very large. The、okay. larger one is of the order two meter class telescope because the, we are observing primary stars close to the galactic center. So、okay. we are not observing object at cosmological distances. So these are.、Uh, Stars are relatively bright, so、mm-hmm. you can observe uh, with uh, modest aperture telescopes, uh, one to two meter class、uh, telescope. But you have to monitor these stars quite densely because a typical microlensing event lasts only for about a month; it can be shorter. Okay. So you need to observe at least once a day. So you have have to have a long term monitoring program to to discover these microlensing events and to And to to catch the perturbation、uh, of the planet, then you need、uh, high cadence. 
But here, there's a very interesting effect coming in because in microlensing, the stars are magnified. Yeah. So in fact, some of these events are highly magnified by a factor of 100 or even more. Okay. So these stars will be very bright, and some of these、uh, can be observed by amateur telescopes. So twenty、oh, centimeter or thirty centimeter telescopes. In fact, many amateurs participated in the discovery of exoplanets with microlensing, because you need to cover the、uh, light curves very densely, and the contributions of these amateurs are actually very significant. So the apertures can range from tens of centimeters all the way up to a two meter class telescope. Oh wow. Is there any program at the moment that we like? There's monitoring a lot of stars, right? A lot of different programs. <laughs> uh, actually, mostly uh, the discovered exoplanets、uh, currently can be divided into two parts. One is so-called survey program.、Mm -hmm. The other one is follow-up program. So the survey teams、uh, have to survey large pieces of sky in order to discover、uh, these microlensing events. So,、uh, for example, the world leading collaboration, the Polish collaboration, OGO,、uh, discovers about、uh, maybe sixteen hundred microlensing events、wow. per year, and all these events are in real time, so they can be found in the OGO website. Now, once these events are discovered, we want to catch the small deviation produced by extrasolar planets.、Mm -hmm. Okay. The convenient thing is that、uh, now these events are discovered in real time. It means that we can pick the most interesting events to follow up to, to discover exosolar planet deviations. And currently, most of the events selected are high magnification events. Okay. So they are highly magnified at the peak of the light curve.、Uh, these stars are very bright, so they are actually observable by amateur、uh, telescopes. So you have survey teams that discover these、uh, thousands of microlens events per year, and then you have follow-up teams、mm -hmm. that can、uh, study selected microlensing events much more densely.、Uh, so this、uh, is divided into two parts. Currently, there are two survey teams, OGO and MO, and there are quite a number of small telescopes used to follow up these uh, uh, selected events. Okay, and. Just for curiosity, as a population, do you find more exoplanets in the center of the galaxy or towards? What about the empty center? Has anyone observed the empty center? Right, because the event is so low, it's one、uh, out of a million. So、yeah. these survey teams, Ogo and Mo, actually mostly observe the galactic center,、okay. where the stellar density is very, very high. Yeah. In fact, not many teams have. Well, no team, in fact, has observed the anti-galactic center, but there have been teams who observed spiral arms quite、mm -hmm. far away from the galactic center. They found some events, but the event rate is quite low. So people now mostly concentrate towards the galactic center. Okay. Okay. It makes sense. <laughs> okay, so just just for numbers, yeah, you said that they found sixteen hundred. Events per year, so right? These are、uh, broadcasted、uh, on the internet. Sixteen、okay. hundred, maybe a comparable number, maybe in the archive. Yeah, because not every event can be identified in the real time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these are candidates, let's say. These are candidates,、yeah. mm -hmm. but、uh, 
maybe a small fraction of these uh, of these uh, candidates are variable stars, but the vast majority are gravitational microlensing events. And when some events have data from both OGO and MO collaborations, they always agree with each other. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very good. Thank you for for the interview, Professor. Thank you for being with us. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for that, Liz. Now we have Christina talking to Professor Caselli about emission from star-forming regions. Joining me in the studio today is Professor Paola Caselli from the University of Leeds, and she was just giving a talk about star formation and water. So, can you just tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Okay, with pleasure. So I work on uh, the very early stages of star formation. So try to understand uh, uh, the physical uh, structure and chemical compositions just before a star and protoplanetary disk is born. And this is, of course, is very important for us because uh, we need uh, these measurements uh, and observations to constrain models of star formation. You mentioned a protoplanetary disk. Can yes. You, can you just explain briefly? Oh, what a sure. Okay. Disk is? Okay. So when uh, we talk about star formation, we have to consider that stars form within clouds, and clouds. Uh, as we can see also in clouds in our atmosphere, they have not very regular shapes, but we can consider or say approximate as say spheroidal type of objects. Now, these spheroidal type of objects, they have an initial rotation. uh, So they rotate a bit. And at the same time to form a star, of course, they have to contract. So if you put together these two things, contraction and rotation, something happens because they are not solid bodies. They, you know, kind of fluffy structures. So if you rotate and spin something that is not really a solid body, think about a pizza dough. What you get, you get a flattened structure and you get uh, what we, in fact we call a protoplanetary disk. So this is like a torus of material that um, will form around the center of, say, the center of gravity where the star is going to form. And this torus that is just orbiting around the star is a very thick and dense region where there is dust and gas, the one that basically was in the in the cloud, the original cloud. But now what happens is that the density becomes so large that the dust grains start to coagulate and become bigger grains. And then at some point, they will become pebbles and then rocks and then planetesimals. And then finally, you form the planet. So all the factories that uh, say to make planets is within these protoplanetary disks. So this disk is, it is it's a disk of material, like, exactly. like a ring of material, a torus. Exactly. Uh, okay. Yes. Fantastic. So what I have done so far, for example, among, you know, various uh, results, one uh, of the first things that we observe is that uh, uh, some of the molecules that we observe, and in particular carbon monoxide that is very abundant in these regions, appears to go away in the center, basically disappears in the center of these uh, clouds, dark, dense regions where stars are going to form, but they have not formed yet. And the reason for that, it seems that the most likely um, um, event is that the CO molecules, they encounter very tiny little dust grains, uh, like the ones that uh, are in the air, but, uh, you know, very tiny, like about in size, say, 1,000 times smaller than sun grains. And once they encounter these grains in these molecular clouds uh, in the interstellar medium where the temperatures are very low, they just stick on them. 
and they're not able to come off in the gas phase because there is not enough energy. The temperatures are in centigrade, it's like minus 260 degrees, so it's really freezing. And these dust grains, uh, these little tiny dust particles started to uh, form nice ice mantles all around formed by these molecules that just come from the gas phase and stick on them. So this was one of the first results. And then uh, we also uh, measured uh, something that is interesting for us in a sense that uh, we also measure in uh, in uh, water oceans. So in, uh, in our Earth oceans, uh, we know that the water, some of the water is heavy water, so it's HDO. And if one measure the ratio between HDO and the normal water, which is H2O, uh, so D is the deuterium. <laughs> and uh, so what we find is that this ratio is actually larger by about a factor of 10 compared to what we measured in, uh, in our universe. So the cosmic abundance of the deuterium uh, compared to hydrogen is, uh, say, 10 times uh, lower in the universe compared to the our Earth ocean. So one thing that we wanted to measure is also this, uh, the so-called deuterium fraction. So how much deuterium, say, deuterated molecules there are compared to the more abundant uh, normal hydrogenated molecules to see if there is some correspondence between what we see at the early phases of star formation and what we see actually on uh, on Earth. You mentioned deuterium and deuterium right. is just um, hydrogen with an extra neutron mm -hmm. in there. Exactly. Yeah, it's just a heavy, like uh, we call it one isotope of the of the hydrogen. So it's a heavier form of, uh, of a hydrogen. Okay. So we couldn't measure the water until some years ago because it was very difficult, but we could measure other species and other deuterated species. And we, in fact, measure very high level of deuteration. That is something that really is a phenomenon that is linked to the fact that some species like CO molecules are frozen. There is some chemistry, so I'm not going to explain all the details on that, but it's really a one-to-one Correlation as, as you freeze out molecules from the gas phase to the dust, you increase the level of deuteration. So, of course, now what we want to do is to measure the deuteration in the water in these uh, regions where there are not yet stars inside. And so, first of all, we measure the water. And uh, this was uh, thanks to Herschel Space Observatory. And uh, so we needed very high sensitivity and um, also high spectral resolution. So this is uh, something that we need to measure the profile of the line that we observe, because it's from the profile of the line that we can understand uh, where the water is coming from within the cloud. Just picking up on something you just said there. Yes. Um, so you said you needed high spectral resolution, so you need to need to be able to see in detail the, the emission lines that you get. So it, these exactly. molecules are emitting a spectrum or they're absorbing a spectrum. Exactly, exactly. We see lines like, uh, you know, when you do, we go to the doctor and do like electrocardiogram. This is kind of the type of lines that we see. And if we want to see like the all the peaks and all the profile of the line, we need to sample the line at, with uh, high resolution. And that is uh, the so-called, say, spectral resolution. And uh, Herschel had a very uh, powerful spectrometer that was able to sample the line at a very small fraction of, uh, uh, say, um, kilometer per second, uh, which is actually what we need to uh, explore regions where motions are very tiny because uh, this is, uh, these are regions very quiescent, very cold, uh, where 
nothing really happens yet, but it's going to happen because it's like, a, a, we call them like a cradle uh, for the star. Uh, so the width of the line depends on how fast the molecules move inside. So we typically see very, very narrow lines because there is very tiny little motion. So, so I, when, you're, when you're looking at these lines, you, you see sort of an emission intensity against um, a velocity. Right, yes. So we have like uh, the line is like uh, a bell uh, line. So we have an intensity and also a width. And the width depends on the motions of the molecules within the cloud. Because if you have a different motion, say, for example, if the molecules is approaching you, you will have like a blue shifted. And this is something that, uh, say, it's... Uh, Every day we experience that with the, you know, Doppler effect that uh, we have, we experience when we have like a siren passing uh, by and uh, all this. Uh, so it goes from um, being a higher pitch to a lower pitch. To lower pitch, yes. So you can consider like in a cloud, like a mixture of many, many molecules all moving with a certain velocity that depends on the temperature as well of the cloud. So you will have like blue shifted emission from the molecules that are approaching you, red shifted emission from the molecules that are going away from you. So at the end, you see the collection of the motions and you then you see a broadened line that uh, tells you also the temperature of the cloud, and if there are any systematic motion, like, for example, gravitational contraction, as we expect in these regions that are going to form stars. So we observed this water line that actually had the very specific profile that can be reproduced, considering, in fact, this contraction motion. And from the profile, the, the emission and also a bit of absorption that we observed, that we were able to measure the abundance profile of the water across the cloud and we could measure the abundance uh, so we measure like a, a vapor a water vapor abundance that was about half earth mass which doesn't sound very big because uh, you know the cloud is 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 huge compared to say the the earth mass we talk in fact about uh, uh, the total mass of the cloud uh, bit more than five solar masses. So, so this cloud is really huge. It's a, yeah, it's a larger cloud that is probably going to form a star similar to our sun. How far, how far does it spread? Like how, how large a cloud right. is Right, so the, the size is about, uh, say, a bit more than 10,000 astronomical units. And this is interesting because if, uh, it's probably 15 in radius, uh, 15 astronomical units. And by astronomical units, you mean the, the distance? The distance the between, uh, yes, yeah, so the sun and the earth. And this is a very interesting, actually, number because uh, if we think about our own solar system, if we think about what is the largest uh, say structure that we have in our uh, solar system, we have the so-called Oort cloud that is the collection of small rocks and comets, uh, uh, icy worlds, basically. And this Oort cloud is supposed to have actually a radius a bit larger than that, but around, say, 20, 30,000 AU, possibly we don't really know exactly. But so this gives us, uh, say, some kind of link between, uh, say, the size of our solar system and the size of this uh, of this cloud. So we have material basically to form even more, say, material to form a star like our sun and the planetary system, our planets. We also know that some of the material of these uh, clouds is going to blow away because once the protostar, so the young star, future sun, will uh, will form, it will form with uh, 
very strong winds and the strong winds are going to blow away part of the material so it's good that we actually have extra because then we can uh, say use uh, you know the material to form uh, uh, most likely like a, a planetary system like our own and we know that uh, there is plenty of water not in the gas phase so the water vapor as i said is only half earth masses but this implies a ice water so uh, water in solid form that is more than the two jupiter masses so we have plenty of water any gas or any any liquid then you won't actually pick this up in in the exactly because so these are uh, like uh, uh, gas phase uh, fissures so this is uh, like uh, the, the line that we are observing is from uh, water molecules that are uh, rotating in the gas phase so we can't see the ice water ice has been seen uh, toward the molecular clouds but much less dense than the one that we are seeing. Because to see something in ice, you have to see fissures in absorption. And these fissures in absorption, especially for the water ice, are in the near-infrared regime. Near-infrared means that you have to have not say too much dust along the line of sight because the near-infrared photons can be absorbed uh, quite soon. So you, you can see absorption fissure looking at the background stars. So stars that are behind the cloud that you're looking at, you look at the spectrum of the star and then the spectrum of the star shows these absorption fissures. And if they are close to two micron, so sorry, the, uh, the, the units, uh, this is um, a little bit, but it's a, say in the near infrared regime without going into too many details. And by, by near infrared, you mean um, the, the area of the spectrum in the infrared that is closest to closest the visible. Closest to the visible, exactly. And uh, so we see this broad absorption bands that can be reproduced exactly in the laboratory with the water ice. So that's a very neat result from other groups. So we know that there is some water ice, but how much, for example, in this pre-stellar course that uh, these clouds were, that are going to form stars, we couldn't know because if we look at toward the center, the extinction due to the dust is so large that we can't see any background star at all. So all of the background is actually being absorbed by things exactly. in front of all of the emission. Exactly. It's completely dark. It's completely dark. In the, um, say, the light of the stars are, uh, say, dimmed by orders of magnitude. So we could need, like, very, very powerful telescopes that don't even exist at the so that's moment. that's like 10 or 100? Or... 100,000 times. So it's really large. It's really large. So the only way to measure the water was through this water vapor in the far infrared. And uh, actually, we needed a satellite because water lines in the far infrared cannot be observed from the ground because we the water that we have in the atmosphere, they just absorb everything. That's why we needed Herschel to go up there and, and look at that. Far infrared, by far infrared, we just mean the area in the spectrum, the infrared, which is furthest. But from exactly, the... yes. In fact, it is near and far is exactly that that refer to our, you know, visible range of uh, wavelengths that we are very well used to. So yes, as you said before, near is the one that part of the infrared that is close to the visible spectrum and far is actually farther out. We are getting close, say, if you if we move even farther, we are getting close to radio. So the wavelength, it means the wavelength of the line gets larger and larger until we reach the radio. So now the next uh, step will be to actually measure HDO. And uh, for that, uh, we just 
got some observing time with the apex antenna, the, which is in the Atacama Desert, next to the big ALMA, uh, the large millimeter array in Chile at high latitudes. So we, we hope that we can observe and detect uh, the HDO and then measure the HDO over H2O ratio. And then it will constrain this uh, ratio at the very beginning before a star and planet form. Okay. Thank you very much for telling us all about your work. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for that, Christina. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. The Keck Observatory in Hawaii has been used to find out where water in Saturn's upper atmosphere is coming from. Researchers have found out that the water comes from rain falling from Saturn's rings. This ring rain helps to explain why electron density in some regions of the planet's ionosphere is reduced. This electron density shows, shows up as glowing from the ions in the atmosphere, and it can be seen in the infrared band. This effect is observed as a series of light and dark bands in a pattern mimicking the planet's rings, and it's led researchers to conclude that charged water particles from the rings are being drawn towards the planet's surface, neutralising glowing hydrogen ions. Cool. So there's water in Saturn's upper atmosphere that they've been trying to figure out how it got there. Is that the basis of this research? That's right. It's long been known that there's water in the atmosphere, but no one's known where it's come from until now. So so it's literally just raining down from the from Saturn's rings onto the upper atmosphere. That's right. So it's charged water particles coming from the rings. I think the the ring particles are about 100 miles above the atmosphere. So okay. they're coming they're coming from the rings down onto onto Saturn itself. That's right. Well, that would make for a lot more interesting rain in Manchester if we had stuff coming from rings around the earth rather than just the clouds. <laughs> <laughs> so how are they actually detecting? You said it was through light and dark patches is is it as the particles collide with the ionosphere they give off it's actually that the in the infrared you can already see glowing coming from saturn's surface and that's due to ions in the surface already and the water actually neutralizes these ions so produces dark patches dark bands okay so it's sort of like absorption rather than emission yeah that's pretty cool. cool that's really cool um, staying in the solar system, my uh, odd and or end is um, about NASA's recent proposal to bag an asteroid from somewhere in the solar system and bring it back to Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. This was announced recently uh, as part of NASA's budget for 2014, and so they've been allocated $105 million towards this um, asteroid recovery program. And essentially they would, they would want to grab uh, an asteroid from an as-yet-undetermined location in the solar system, bring it back to Earth Earth orbit, and then study its uh, composition and and basically be able to look at the asteroid um, in situ as opposed to studying fragments that appear uh, on Earth that have been burnt up through the atmosphere and, and things like that. So the details are still very sketchy. Um, it's early days yet, but they plan to use a probe powered by ion thrusters, so it's essentially um, accelerating ions... Which, which are found in space, and producing thrust through that mechanism. Finding an asteroid, surrounding it with some sort of bag or mesh, I suppose, and then towing it back home, <laughs> really. Cool. And has the ion technology been used before? For- it has. It's not completely new. Um, NASA has a couple of probes that use it, including the Dawn probe, uh, which just spent um, a year orbiting the asteroid Vesta, which is massive, and then now it's looking at the dwarf planet Ceres. 
The asteroid they're planning on catching, though, is a lot smaller. It's going to be about eight meters in diameter. So, mm. so I mean, really tiny and on that on astronomical scales. But anything bigger would have been would be a bit difficult to tow back. So. Mm. I have to say, I actually I read this on the first of April, and I assumed it was uh, an April Fool's Day joke, <laughs> as I guess several other people probably did. Yeah. Um, do they have any more uh, information about how they're going to actually grab it? Are they just sort of going to latch onto it, or pull mm. it, or wrap something around it? So I think I think the plan is to is to yeah is to wrap something around it to to get it with a with a sort of bag. So they're going to sort of. I don't know, trawl for it, and then, but they have to stabilize it, stop the asteroid's motion. So they're going to sort of use thrusters to kind of make it stay still, and then drag it back using the uh, the ion spacecraft. Once it's in Earth orbit, the uh, so scientists and astronauts are going to to jet up and, and visit it using the um, what's known as the Orion vehicle or space launch system. Uh, so those are, those are, the Orion is already predicted to begin flying crews up into orbit by 2021. Um, so that along with the ISS, and they're going to go from there onto the asteroid. They, they are NASA are aiming to capture a specific type of asteroid called a carbonaceous chondrite because they're the most compositionally diverse asteroids. So they've got loads of interesting complex organic molecules. They contain metals, and they've also got they're presumed to contain water as well. So. All in all, yeah, that would be the most interesting thing to find. The problem is, the downside to that, is that they are also the asteroids that are the furthest away from Earth in the solar system. So the target remains to be determined. So there could be lots of interesting science to come from this, possibly oh. looking at the origin of life. Yeah, there, there could actually be the possibility of either there being life on the asteroid somehow, which would, of course, be a, a huge discovery. If there isn't, there's also, you know, we could set up maybe send some extremophile bacteria to see how it copes on the asteroid and whether, you know, living organisms could actually survive in, in space like that. But their main, their, the main thing they're looking at is the composition of the asteroid? For now, that's the plan. I mean, as is... As is the case with all big science projects, uh, things are going to get fleshed out as they go along, really. And I think total final cost estimates are floating around the $2.5 billion mark. So it's only a very small step towards it, but I still think still think it's a pretty crazy but really cool idea. I think it's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so moving on, there has been some data released from Chandra, which is an X-ray telescope. And uh, it's been looking at one of the Milky Way's closest galactic neighbours, which is called the Small Magellanic Cloud, which is a dwarf galaxy. And it's been looking at X-ray emission from uh, young stars, which actually have masses that are somewhat close to the sun's mass. And it's the first time X-rays have been detected from stars of this size outside of our own galaxy. I mean, even it is it's a very close galactic neighbour, but still outside of our galaxy. The region it's been looking at is an area called the wing, which is known to have um, fewer metals. And by metals, we mean elements that are heavier than hydrogen and helium, so not necessarily metals, as you may think in a day-to-day life. The wing has fewer metals when compared with the Milky Way. So it's kind of interesting to have a look at how stars evolve in different environments, basically. And so far, they've, they've seen that the young stars in this particular area, in this cluster called NGC 602A within the wing, actually produce X-rays in a similar way to stars within our galaxy, which have a much higher metal content. The people who've done this research say that this could imply that there are other properties that they share that are, that are not so dependent on the amount of metal content in the stars, which is a really exciting and interesting um, thing to have observed, really. Cool. And also, um, they've managed to put together a rather beautiful image <laughs> using uh, Hubble Space Telescope data and uh, Spitzer Space Telescope data, which is an infrared telescope, along with the Chandra emission from, from the X-ray emission. And it, it's an absolutely gorgeous image. <laughs> 
Well, that's that's one of the main goals of astronomy, isn't it? To make really, really pretty pictures. <laughs> Wish my data came in pretty picture form. <laughs> so do we all. <laughs> the um, yeah, that that really shows the uh, the point of of observing at different wavelengths because you you really don't know everything about an object until you've looked at it in in, in every possible through every possible telescope. I guess. I mean, there was a lot of data about the small Magellanic Cloud already from other observations, but look at it in another wavelength, and we discover all sorts of new interesting things. So. Yeah, I mean, there's so much um, so much information get, that gets blocked out by things like dust clouds. So, I mean, if we were looking in the optical, dust would obscure a lot of what we see. So, we look in the infrared to see through these cool uh, these to see through these dust clouds. So, like dust clouds can obscure what we see in the optical. So, we use um, other wavelengths to see through or to see structure within these clouds. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's really interesting what you can see in different wavelengths. And apparently, the small Magellanic Cloud is visible to the naked eye, but you have to be on the right part of the Earth. Yes, right. Southern Hemisphere, and if you catch it the right time of year and you're at the right area in the Southern Hemisphere, yeah, you can actually see it. And I saw a hint of it when I was in the Southern Hemisphere, but not as stunningly beautiful as, mm. as I'd hoped, but the weather was fairly poor when I was left. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, speaking of x-rays, here's Dr Tim O'Brien, who's cutting to the bone of all your astronomical questions. The first question this week is from Margaret Feaster. She asks... If I fall from high in the atmosphere where the gravity of the whole Earth is pulling me down, I would accelerate to high speed. So as I go faster and faster, would my mass increase? Then, if I proceeded to fall to the centre of the Earth through a handy straight tunnel, would I zoom past the centre, then fall back again and again, and eventually slow down to a stop at the centre, and therefore lose the mass I would have gained while speeding? I guess a simpler question would be, does a pendulum have a greater mass while it is swinging than when it stops at the bottom of its path? (laughs) <laughs> it's a good question isn't it um and, and the simple answer is yes <laughs> um and it's all down to um down to einstein's special theory of relativity um and that basically tells us that the mass of a moving object is increased and it's increased by a factor called the lorentz factor so we usually write it with a greek letter gamma um and it's actually equal to the formula for it it's equal to one over the square root of one minus v squared over c squared where V is the, the velocity or the speed of the object, C is the speed of light. So it's all about how fast you're going relative to the speed of light. Um, and so in that formula, if you can remember that formula, if you put V equals zero, so the object's not moving, you put that into that formula, that, this gamma factor, this Lorentz factor comes out to one. So that means that your your mass is basically just your rest rest mass. Uh, you multiply it by this factor of one, it doesn't change it. But as soon as you start moving and V gets faster and faster then you start multiplying it by a bigger and bigger number this gamma factor gets bigger and bigger and it sort of rises slowly at first but then then really rapidly ramps up towards towards the end until it reaches the 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 sort of ultimate limit which is the speed of light at which point if you plug v equals c into that formula you would end up with a, a gamma factor of infinity actually um so it rises rapidly towards the end now um, so, so, so in that sense, the answer is yes. As, as she falls in the atmosphere, as you speed up, your mass would increase. But it's actually only very, an, you know, an infinitesimally small amount, a very tiny amount. Um, I worked out what your, if you were traveling in a passenger jet. So if you go on a, you know, supersonic, not a supersonic aircraft, normal sort of Boeing 747 or something. They're about, um, they travel at about 250 meters a second. So in that formula, which is pretty fast, but in that formula, what matters is V over C. So you have to compare that speed of 250 meters per second to the speed of light, which is 300 million meters per second. Three times 10 to the 8 meters per second. It's a lot bigger. Than so, <laughs> so, so that's a lot bigger than even 250 meters per second. So, so that would have almost no, almost no effect. I mean, you can, 
you know, you can accelerate particles to high fractions of the speed of light. So something like the Large Hadron Collider does it. Um, and so we do see this effect. And if you get to something like, I mean, for example, if you take an electron or something, accelerate it through a through a potential difference, um, you can get it to maybe 99% of the speed of light, then actually its mass goes up by a factor of seven. A factor of seven? Yeah, so it's seven times heavier if it's moving at 99% of the speed of light. But you do have to get up to those high velocities. So in her, uh, in the example that we were just given um, of falling towards the Earth and then falling through the middle of the Earth, which is a neat trick. As everybody knows, actually, the, the way to the middle of the Earth is through a volcano in Iceland. Did you know that? No. No, she needs to read Jules Verne. Oh. <laughs> so I was there recently, actually. Snaefell's Yokel, it's called, the volcano. So that's where in Jules Verne's journey to the centre of the Earth, they go through that hole. And it's not a straight tunnel either. But never mind. If we imagine this straight <laughs> tunnel that goes down through the middle of the Earth, then, yeah, you'd sort of accelerate faster and faster down as you, as you, as you fell down that centre, um, down, down that tunnel, I should say. And, in fact, if, if you imagine this bizarre situation with this tunnel, it was a vacuum, and you had some breathing apparatus, I guess, um, and the Earth wasn't spinning round as well. If you sort of jumped off the edge and fell down the tunnel, then actually all things being equal, you'd you'd whiz through the middle of the Earth, right through the centre of the Earth, centre point of the all Earth, all the way through. All the way through. Forty-two minutes later, you'd pass through the middle. You'd be travelling at a speed of almost eighteen thousand miles an hour. <laughs> but then you would sort of head out the other way, and at that point, then the the, the gravity of the Earth sort of slowing you down. So you gradually slow down, and as I say, all things being equal, you'd just pop up again on the other side, and hopefully someone would grab you, because otherwise you'd go straight back down again, and all the way back through, and you would just, you'd sort of oscillate backwards and forwards if there was no air resistance. Obviously, a bit of air resistance, you'd, you'd eventually settle to the middle of the Earth. But even at that speed um, of 18,000 miles an hour, which is, which is very fast, obviously, it's uh, nearly eight kilometres a second, even then, that ratio of speed velocity that you're traveling at compared to the speed of light is only three thousandths of a percent so in that pretty tiny (laughs) so in that formula that lorentz factor that gamma factor is still basically one pretty much one so so even when you you know even you imagine that you're not going to travel fast enough to uh, increase your mass perceptibly I'm so you'd afraid. have to be travelling really, really quickly before you'd notice anything. <laughs> you, ab- absolutely, and we do see that. What well, we see, we tend to see it with, you know, with with subatomic particles, which are, you know, easier to accelerate effectively with the sort of energies we have available. Our second question comes from Stanley Fertig, who asks, "How does a light sail work? If photons have no mass, then how can they impart momentum onto an object they hit, or is the latter's momentum the result of a heating effect?" Yeah. Um, so first of all, we should probably say what a light sail is. First of all, mm-hmm. um, so this is this idea that you you know you put a it effectively works like a like a boat's sail, um, except you put this sort of big big um, this big object in space, this big 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 sail, probably not made of cloth but something else, uh, and then effectively the light of the sun, the radiation from the sun, the photons from the sun, so hit this sail. And as he says, the the idea is that they as they hit it, they basically push the sail, and that accelerates the, the spaceship. So you use it just like a boat; you would use a sail with the with the wind. Um, but for that to work, these photons have to sort of in the collision, the photon has to transfer some some momentum to the to the uh, to the sail to the spacecraft for it to accelerate it. And the problem, the the thing that Stanley's worried about is the fact that photons have no mass. And what 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 he's thinking about is this this sort of classical expression for momentum which is mass times velocity so for 
momentum, we usually give it a symbol P, is equal to mv, mass times velocity. And obviously, if you had a mass of zero, your momentum would be zero, and then that, that mechanism couldn't work. And in fact, just sort of linking this with the last question, actually, the solution is, again, is special relativity. Um, because in special relativity, that, that formula, P equals mv, is modified. So that m, that mass, is now not the rest mass, it's the relativistic mass. So that's multiplied by this factor gamma again, so the same Lorentz factor. So the relativistic mass is just the mass multiplied by the, the, it's the rest factor. Exactly, it's the rest mass multiplied by, by the Lorentz factor multiplied by gamma. So you've basically got this sort of formula that says that relativistic momentum is gamma m naught v, where m naught would be the rest mass. Um, you've also got a relativistic energy, um, which is gamma m naught c squared. So you'll have heard of E equals mc squared. Mm -hmm. So, so what the m in that case for a, for a moving object would be this gamma m naught. It's gamma times the rest mass m naught. Um, so actually, you know, if you if you then use if you sort of allow for that correction to standard classical sort of um, physics, um, then if you have a particle that's got no mass, so its mass is zero, but it's traveling at a speed, you know, a typical sort of speed that we might see around us, like the supersonic aircraft or the or, or something along those lines, then in those formulae, you plug in your, you work out a gamma factor, like we were just doing, You but you plug in a, a mass of zero, a rest mass of zero, and you get an answer of zero. So the momentum would be zero and the energy would be zero, mm -hmm. right? So that would be sort of what, what, what he's saying. But the difference is if you've got a particle with zero mass, but whose speed is actually equal to the speed of light... So if V equals C, which is okay. what is true for a photon, which is what we're talking about here, then you use those formulae, you actually end up with an energy which is given by zero divided by zero. And you get momentum that's zero divided by zero in those formulae. Okay. Now that's a sort of problem mathematically, because <laughs> you think, well, what, what, what's the answer to zero divided by zero? Is it, is it because you're dividing the same two numbers together, you get the answer one or, is it because you're dividing by zero, you get the answer infinity? So in fact, it's undefined. So in principle, you could end up with any energy or momentum. So you, so the, I mean, the way, I mean, just to maybe put some more um, flesh on that, really, if you take those two formulae for relativistic momentum, P equals gamma MV and E equals gamma M naught C squared, and you combine them together, you get this classical formula in relativity, which is a relationship between energy and momentum, which is E squared equals P squared C squared plus M naught squared C to the fourth. Allowing you to have a... <laughs> yeah, so, so, that's, so, that's, so that's basically relating energy to momentum and to, and, to, and to rest mass. And so you can take that formula, if you can sort of picture it in your head, E squared is the energy, is equal to P squared C squared, P is the momentum, plus M naught squared C to the four, M naught's the rest mass. So if you put M naught equals zero, you end up with E squared equals P squared C squared, or E equals PC. And that relates energy to momentum in, re in relativity. And for a photon, a photon does have energy. So energy is given by, actually given by the Planck constant H times its frequency, or so HF or HC over lambda in the, in the case of a wavelength lambda. And so you can actually find an expression for the momentum of a, of a photon, which is the energy divided by C, P equals E over C. So photons, massless objects, travelling at the speed of light, do indeed have a momentum. So that's that's okay. And actually, it was, it was funny because it, it it made me um, it stimulated me to go and look at an example, look up an example of a of a solar sail. 
because I was thinking, okay, so theoretically they are possible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what, where are we with that? And I found, and I hadn't heard of this, but there's an interesting, there's a Japanese spacecraft called Icaros, I-K-A-R-O-S, which okay. I guess, I guess there was a play on Icarus. I assume so. So, so, so it's sort of the, the person that flew too close to the sun. So this stands for Icarus in this case, stands for interplanetary kite craft accelerated by radiation of the sun. Icarus. Um, and that was actually launched in 2010 headed towards the sun and actually passed by Venus. Um, and that's now apparently the first spacecraft to successfully demonstrate this solar sail technology. Uh, it's in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's first solar sail spacecraft between planets. And it has a, it had a solar sail that was basically 14 metres by 14 metres. Imagine that's so a that, fairly large... How, how big was the craft itself? I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, it would have been presumably, it's, you know, as, as you say, it'd have to make it as light as possible. In fact, mm-hmm. I, th- I think, if I remember rightly from look, look, reading up about this, I think the cameras were very tiny that it had on it that they were using. So probably you'd try and make this thing weigh as little as possible for it to, you know, get a significant acceleration. So it would have been small, I think. I'm not exactly sure of the answer to that. Um, but the weird thing about that, I mean, it's an interesting thing, actually, is not, not only was it pushed by the solar wind, this radiation pressure, um, they also stuck some um, solar cells on the on the solar sail so, so that the was- photons, was it was generate energy. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so it was so it's like so it's basically a double whammy. So, so they were able, it was able to power its own propulsion system from some of the photons hitting the sail, as well as using the momentum of the photons hitting the sail. That's incredibly efficient. <laughs> no, it's, it's, a neat, it's a neat, it's a neat, it's a neat trick. And the the, the, the plan is to um, um, to launch a, a bigger one, mm-hmm. fifty meters or so across, or something like that, um, to uh, to head to Jupiter later in the decade. Oh, brilliant! And we'll send we'll. Put some links to that on the yeah, show notes. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Our third question comes from Rob Bowman, who says, for a lot of the work that radio astronomers do, you use a very narrow beam width to look at a tiny area of the sky. So why is electromagnetic interference from, for example, mobile phones a problem? Yeah, sensible point, actually. Um, and just to just to sort of explain what, what he's talking about there, he's talking about this narrow beam width. What that means is when you've got a sort of big dish telescope and you point it in a particular direction... It's effectively only seeing, we talk about it, only seeing a very small spot on the sky. Um, and so, so he's effectively saying, okay, we got this radio telescope. It's pointed over there somewhere. <laughs> it's only looking in that direction. Why would you re- worry about a mobile phone off on the ground somewhere way off to the side? You know, what, it wouldn't even be pointing in the right direction. So it wouldn't pick it up. It wouldn't cause interference. Well, I mean, you know, in, in general terms, that's true. They do have these sort of these beams, and and the 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 width of the beam. We sort of think about how how broad this this beam is when a telescope's looking in a particular direction. It's it depends on the wavelength you're using and the diameter of the telescope. And the width is actually in, in measured in angular units of radians. It's it's wavelength divided by diameter. So to give an example, if we pick the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell. Uh, which has a diameter of about 76 metres. And we say we were working using it at a wavelength of 21 centimetres, which is a common wavelength for us to use. Um, that calculate that angle from lambda over D, you get about 10 arc minutes. So that's, so an arc minute is 160th of a degree. So 10 arc minutes is about a third the width of the full moon. So if you imagine the Lovell telescope look, looking up into the sky, it, the radio waves, it's, it, it's sort of picking up from a patch on the sky about a third the size of the full moon. Now, actually, that means it's 
its view is blurred to that level. So it doesn't see anything that's much smaller than that. Much smaller than that, exactly. So, so that's, you know, a limitation of a single telescope. And that's why we have these big interferometer arrays where we extend them over many kilometers, 200 kilometers in the case of E. Merlin. That allows us to, you know, get a synthesizer much smaller beam and, and look at finer detail in things on the sky. So, so yeah, you can even so, you know, you know, for an astronomer, the third the size of the full moon's pretty blurry and that beam's <laughs> quite wide. Um, but it still would be the case. Imagine it looking up there. You know, you think, well, if it's all coming from that direction, where does the mobile phone matter? Well, there's a couple of things really. And one is that it's not entirely true that it's all from that single beam in that direction. Um, there's things that radio astronomers call side lobes. Side lobes. <laughs> side lobes, yes. Um, and what they are are I don't know whether, if you've seen, um, I don't know if anybody's seen, so if some Hubble Space Telescope images, for example, of bright stars, uh, what you see is this, this sort of spot of the star itself in the middle, but then around it, you might just be able to see for the brightest stars, you see these sort of circular, these concentric ripples, effectively rings of light, concentric ripples around this central bright spot. So that's a, basically a diffraction pattern of a, of a point. The star's effectively a point source on the sky. And, the, and, and as the, you know, it's a basically a fundamental limitation of collecting the light in an aperture, whether it's a big radio telescope or it's the Hubble Space Telescope mirror, you get this diffraction pattern. So what that means is for this radio telescope, you've got this central beam, which is the 10 out minute wide spot at the centre. But then surrounding it, there are these these sort of concentric rings where you would still pick up radio waves coming from that, that circle around it and then from another circle around that farther out and, and so on. So it has like it, it, its main collecting area and then it sort of gets contaminated for one exactly. better word. Exactly, yeah. So, so in fact, in terms of doing radio astronomy on the sky, if you were looking at a really faint object in a particular point on the sky, you point your telescope at that, at that object. If you had a really bright object off to one side somewhere that happened to be sitting on one of these side lobes, one of these ripples, what it means is you see, you see radio waves from that as well that mix into the faint stuff you're trying to detect in your main beam. So that's called, you know, that's a confusing effect where you get those sorts of things coming in through the side lobes. Now, luckily, the side lobes are much weaker than the main beam. So they're much, so you don't, you know, you'd have to have a very strong source to, to detect it through the side lobe. But for something like a mobile phone, mobile phones are significantly brighter than the astronomical sources we're looking at. So they're really strong, bright sources. So, you, so they can come in through the side lobes, so off to one side of the telescope, in the direction we're pointing in. Plus, if you imagine sort of looking up at the Lovell telescope, pointing at, at an angle, you can actually see the focus box where the receiver is. You can see the receiver itself depending on the angle. So if you've got a mobile phone signal, the mobile phone signal can see straight into the receiver. So it doesn't have to reflect off the dish and be collected at the focus in the normal way, which is all this beam and side lobe business it can just go straight in um, and be directed detected directly or reflect off part of the structure and, and into the thing so it's the it's the very fact that they're bright that that means that it still does cause a problem so if you're ever going to visit any of the radio telescopes keep your phone off and if you have any astronomical questions then feel free to send them in via all the usual routes thanks for that tim and christina 
Now on to the feedback. Unfortunately, we don't have any post this time round. We do have some emails, though, and I think Christina would like to read out, read them out. So, First of all, we've had um, some comments from Andy H, who's uh, commented about our regional accents. The Jodcast volunteers come from a variety of regions within the UK and countries abroad. So, as you would expect, we do have a variety of regional accents and dialects, which is kind of representative of the wider astronomical community. And we're pretty proud of this diversity, and we do believe that the quality and clarity of the science that we discuss on, on the podcast is more important than the region that our volunteers come from. And on a more positive note, um, we've had an email from Stanley Fertig, who says, Love all you guys. I'm an assiduous listener while I travel, while I travel the subways of NYC, but I miss Jen Gupta. As oh. do we all. Oh. Well, that makes me wish I was in New York, though. That's, uh, that's a really cool comment, really uplifting there. On the forum, uh, Andrew Ape seems to have enjoyed our April Fool's episode, commenting, Fools know our Jodcasters. Good, very, was edition, April, backwards, the. So he <laughs> seems to have picked up on the theme that was going on there. On Facebook, uh, Stuart Cahoon Sr. says, Love the show. Every month I look forward to downloading it to my iPad. And... Kiel Caruthers messaged us saying, Been listening to the show for two years. Love it. Keep up the great work, guys. Thanks, Kiel. Also, thanks for all the likes and welcome to any new followers. On Twitter, the special April episode had its intended effect. John Moran tweeted, This month's jogcast is messing with my head. Cheers, guys. And Yoda the Oak said, Are you jogcast got me all back to front? Also, apparently we've been on Twitter for six years now. I'm finding it hard to believe that Twitter is six years old. And thanks for all the retweets and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. The forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. So all that's left to say is thanks to Paolo Caselli and Shude Mao for the interviews. The editors were Sally Cooper, Christina Smith, Liz Guzman, Tim O'Brien and Mark Perver. The producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time, Jod on! Yeah.